Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the coronavirus and teens. We'll hear how a DeKalb County pediatrician wants to bring awareness about the importance of getting teenagers vaccinated. But first this, Fulton County commissioners will consider passing a resolution to seek guidance from the county's legal department to challenge the state's new voting law. Now, District Commissioner Khadija Abdur-Rahman says the resolution includes a number of provisions. First, it affirms the county's official support of H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. The For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Enhancement Act to offset Georgia's Senate Bill 202 restrictive voting measures. Secondly, it directs the county attorney to provide legal methods in court or out of court the county may use to fight any measures at its disposal to fight SB 202. Number three, it directs the county manager and the election supervisor to provide procedures to expand equal access to the ballot consistent with SB 202 and other Georgia election laws. Now, Commissioner Rockman went on to say that the state's new voting law, especially as it relates to these drop boxes, specifically targets Fulton County voters. We're going from 38 24-hour drop boxes to just eight countywide. I will repeat that. Fulton County is going from 38 24-hour drop boxes to just eight countywide for 800,000 voters and only during daytime hours. That is terroristic legislation. And Georgia's new voting law also makes big changes to the state's absentee voting system, including adding new identification requirements. And also it criminalizes handing out food or water to voters waiting in line at polling places within 150 feet of those locations. Now, since Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed Senate Bill 202 into law last month, there have been multiple lawsuits. But Governor Brian Kemp continues his criticism of Major League Baseball's decision to pull this year's All-Star game. Kemp spoke to the Cobb County Chamber of Commerce just yesterday. And I want you to know that I've spent the last two weeks on the road and in more than 60 interviews standing up for our business community and letting the world know just how bad a decision that was. Now, in other news, Georgia State Senator Emanuel Jones is calling on Governor Kemp to remove Stonecrest Mayor Jason Larry. Now, Senator Jones, a Democrat representing Decatur, says he will provide a full report to Kemp and federal authorities showing the misuse of millions of dollars of the CARES Act funding. The Stonecrest City Council voted yesterday to make the report, which is over 100 pages, public. Mayor Larry says he's innocent and that Senator Jones has a vendetta against him. Closer Look reached out to Mayor Larry for comment, but as of our time, we have not received a response. Now, on to our daily update of the coronavirus right here in Georgia. After federal public health officials advised the U.S. should, quote, pause use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and this comes from following the guidance of the FDA and CDC, Georgia is also pausing all Johnson & Johnson vaccinations until further notice. In a joint statement, the FDA and the CDC say they're investigating six reported cases of a, quote, rare and severe blood clot 
after receiving the vaccine. And White House officials say, however, this will not slow down the vaccination efforts. Now, here in Georgia, more than 124,000 of the Johnson & Johnson vaccines have been administered. In a statement, the Georgia Department of Public Health, well, they say they're working to provide Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for those who were previously scheduled for appointments with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So you might want to check on that. At this time, about 17 percent of Georgians are currently, quote, fully vaccinated. And the state continues to rank, though, among the lowest in the nation for these vaccination rates. Meanwhile, hospitalizations have remained steady in Georgia for the past three weeks. So the total number of hospitalizations now is fifty nine thousand seven hundred and seventy nine. And now another 587 new cases were just confirmed yesterday, bringing the total since last March to 862,720. And sadly, 17,017 Georgians have died due to the virus. And speaking of the coronavirus, coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Jane Wilkove. She's a pediatrician and the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center. And we'll discuss efforts on a way to start vaccinating more teenagers. All that's just ahead. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You may recall, obviously, last month, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp expanded the state's COVID-19 vaccine eligibility. All Georgians over the age of 16 will be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination. All. But at the time of this broadcast, according to the State Department of Public Health, just over 58,000 15 to 19 year olds have actually been vaccinated here in Georgia. And my next guest wants to do something about it. She's Dr. Jane Wilkove. She's a pediatrician and the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center, a local pediatric practice that recently started vaccinating teens. Dr. Wilkove, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let's actually begin by looking at another state for a moment. Um, I want to talk about Michigan because it's reported that children and teens have the fastest rate of COVID-19 cases in any other age group. I just want to get your thoughts on that and, and what that might say to you as a, as a physician, as a scientist, when you hear that, particularly with that age group. Well, you know, we've known all along, and this, let me backtrack because this has been so fascinating from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. If you think about flu and so many of the common viral illnesses, kids are the major vectors and the transmitters. So parents get sick because kids get sick. I think all parents out there know their children come home from daycare and the next thing they know they're sick. With COVID this year, it's been at least portrayed that it's kind of the opposite. Mm -hmm. That there have certainly been cases in kids and teens especially. Um, we initially thought that they were the transmitters. And as time went on over the last year, we've realized that typically um, it's coming from the adults to the kids. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting, this newest um, data out of Michigan, as more and more of the older folks are getting vaccinated, is there really a higher rate in kids or are we just noticing it more now? Uh, kind of what's going on there is kind of, it's, it's fascinating to, to try to figure that out. Illness in kids is so much more mild mm -hmm. that probably for the whole last year, there's been a lot of kids that have had COVID um, that just seem like a normal cold. Yeah, you know, because I remember last year when this was a, a population that no one really had concerns about when this all this started, it was older individuals, it was folks who might have some pre-existing condition. And so the kids were kind of seemed to you know, be not that officials weren't concerned, but certainly this was a population that we didn't hear a lot about. But now, um, as you mentioned, we are hearing and now there are even efforts to just have vaccination centers just for teens. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think um, for sure, whether it's in vaccination centers or in pediatric offices, there, there are some logistical issues that we can go into in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But yes, um, and all this talk about herd immunity with 25% or more of the population, 16 and under, until we can get all the kids vaccinated, we're not going to get this completely under control. What concerns do you have as a physician regarding Georgia experiencing any type of similar spike that what we're seeing in Michigan? Oh, I think it's quite possible and, and probably actually probable. Um, sometimes you only know what you test for. So 
I think there's probably a lot of other states that are in similar positions to Michigan that we just don't know about. Doctor, what questions are you getting from parents? What they call and they're asking, hey, should I get my teen, you know, vaccinated? What are you hearing from parents? Well, I can say this has been unbelievably interesting to me that it's been the kids that have been driving this. Really? Um, and in fact, uh, when we, we'd been trying for months to get vaccine and we initially, even though we're pediatricians, were going to vaccinate the 65 and old, initially the healthcare workers and then the 65 and older. And as the eligibilities um, increased in Georgia, we were prepared to vaccinate our parents, our grandparents, our caretakers of our kids. And then um, for issues that were sort of beyond our control, we, we weren't allocated the vaccine until recently, right about the same time that it was opening up for the 16 and 17 year olds. And of course that's only Pfizer vaccine, which is definitely the hardest vaccine to administer. And um, so the timing just sort of worked out perfectly that we were gonna get vaccine finally right at the same time and we were a little bit nervous about um, you have to use 1,170 doses in a two-week period mm -hmm. in terms of storage. That's a lot of doses to move through. And we weren't sure what the uptake would be and logistically how we could even do that and still continue seeing patients in the practice. So we kind of thought in our heads we were going to start out a little slowly. And organically, this spread like wildfire through the community. And unbeknownst to me, our, the fact that we had vaccine was out on Facebook. It was in teen groups. We were getting emails and phone calls. And um, as the kids started coming in um, with their parents, many parents we vaccinated also and grandparents, um, they were all sharing it with their friends. Hmm. And one after another, it was the kids. And in fact, we had one kid, this is so interesting, a 17-year-old that had never had a vaccine in his life um, for whatever reasons, um, assuming that his uh, parents were um, vaccine resistant, hesitant mm -hmm. folks. And he's the one that at 17 told his parents, I'm getting that COVID vaccine. I want my life back. And so we administered it to him. It was the first vaccine he's had in his life. Interesting that you said that he, you quoted him as saying he wanted his life back because that's going to lead us into our next series of questions. I was wondering what prompted that. And I imagine it's because these teens who've been isolated from their friends for over a year that that may have played a role in this as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, the impact may not have been on the hospitalizations and the death rate that we've been hearing about for a year, but the emotional impact for these kids has just been beyond enormous. Mm -hmm. um, the academic, missing school, missing friends, missing life cycle events, graduations, proms, um, last, last year, summer camp, summer activities, work, seeing their grandparents. So as pediatricians, we've seen less and less illness as people are socially distanced and isolated and more and more mental uh, health issues. We've probably talked about and prescribed more things for anxiety and depression than we did antibiotics in the, in the last year. For teens? For teens, for teens, yeah. It's wow. changed the whole shape of the practice. Um, there's not a day that we're not dealing with uh, issues that teens and even younger kids are uh, experiencing. So anxiety, depression. Um, I know you eating disorders, um, weight gain, weight loss, social isolation, um, fighting with their parents that when they're at home cooped up with them oh yeah yeah we know the family we know the family <laughs> unity time might have uh, decreased a little bit i want to focus on the the youth the teens for a moment again in their mental health uh, what what were you hearing and you obviously you know you're not going to use names but what were you hearing from some of the teens and how were they trying to cope with it if they were at all yeah i think um it was very difficult depending on the external resources that they had. Um, and this affected kids. Our, our practice is extremely diverse. We see kids from all different backgrounds, all different socioeconomic groupings and all sorts of um, resources available to them in, in, in their homes and in the community. And I would say that this affected kids across the board. This is not just uh, one group in particular. Mm -hmm. 
Um, some had more stressors than others. Um, parents losing jobs, parents working two or three jobs, home trying to do school, um, isolated on, on virtual learning that they just really couldn't get into. Um, also fear, many had, had um, family members or friends or people, or they would just turn the news on and see, you know, horrific kind of images and pictures for a whole year. Yeah. Um, they were scared. They um, really had to learn new coping skills that a year ago, I don't think anybody thought that they were going to have to deal with. Absolutely. None of us did. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Wilco. She's a pediatrician and the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center, a local practice that recently started vaccinating teens. We're also talking about the mental health issues related to the pandemic as it relates to our teens. Dr. Wilco, what measures do you use as a physician before you take the steps to prescribe something for a person that young to deal with any type of, of, of mental condition? What, what goes through your mind? What are those measures you use? Because someone listening to me and say, God, it's so young to, to give a teen something for anxiety or depression or something like that. Yeah, sure. We don't take, um, take that lightly at all. And of course, um, well, there, there are some objective things. So there are some uh, inventory scales um, for depression and anxiety that are, can objectively be scored to kind of help point us in a, in a direction. Um, it's mostly talking and talking and talking with the teens, with the, with the family, listening, a lot of listening, um, spending a lot of time. Uh, we never would prescribe any medication without also prescribing some kind of counseling or uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. Of course, those folks have been swamped and inundated, so it's really difficult to, to get that going, you know, rapidly. Um, so it's a process. It does, it's not you come in and here's your, here's your quick fix pill. Mm-hmm. And it's follow-up and it's ongoing follow-up and ongoing counseling and families working together. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot. And to be honest, our doctors at the end of each day, we've seen for a year, oh, some days half to a quarter as many patients come through the office. We're doing a lot of telemedicine. We do a lot of this on telemedicine also. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of social distancing and we've kept our office a, a well office, so the volume of patients has dramatically decreased over the course of the year. The intensity has quadrupled. So everybody here is going home exhausted at the end of the day. That was my next question. That was my next question. How's your staff doing? Do you have enough? Are they overworked, overloaded? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough year. Um, you know, everybody dealing personally with their issues and then hearing all this from our patients. Um, and honestly, that was part of why we signed up back in December to vaccinate. We wanted to do something positive and something that could be make a small impact in our, at least our patient population in our local community. And we didn't just do teens, <clears throat> so let me be clear, not just uh, in our practice, but we opened this up to the entire community. Mm-hmm. And in fact, partnered with Decatur High School and the Decatur City School System and, and um, had one day, March 31st, where we did 625 vaccines in the same day. We closed the practice to everyone else and we just had all hands on deck and it actually was really uplifting. Uh, the kids were enjoying it, the school staff. We had some of our patients, uh, grandparents. It was just open for as many as we could accommodate. We didn't think we could do that many. And we, at the end of the day, we said, wow, we could have done three or 400 more. <laughs> so right now, and you talked about this, the only vaccine that's approved by the FDA to give to people 16 and up is Pfizer, correct? Um, that is correct. What is that supply looking like for you all? You were able to, to keep enough in because it, and, I, and let me tell you something after they hear this segment you're going to get more people <laughs> <laughs> well <clears throat> the state keeps sending us more vaccine too i was just talking to them yesterday saying oh my gosh i just saw a shipping label come across for yet another tray and i called and i said wow we're getting another tray so soon we still have more she said, yeah well you're giving it so fast we're going to keep sending it to you as long as you can keep giving it so we've gotten really much more efficient and really quick and Honestly, we're really proud of what we're, what we're doing. And I say we because it's the entire staff. We've got six doctors, four nurse practitioners, and 13 staff all together. 
And every single person in this office has played a role in making this vaccine uh, rollout happen. Uh, doctors are typing on the computer and doing making charts and um, they've relearned how to give vaccines, um, <laughs> although they prefer when the medical assistants who are really good at it give the vaccines, but all hands on deck. We've, it's been an all out um, amazing effort. But the Pfizer vaccine in particular is really difficult. And um, I have a lot of concerns about this moving forward mm -hmm. in terms of being able to uh, have other practices, you know, join in uh, the effort. And especially because very soon, probably actually sooner than we all think, it's going to be approved for, for 12 and up. Mm -hmm. So we've got a whole other segment that we're going to add on, um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And uh, um, Pfizer vaccine in particular, though, it comes in a tray of 1,170 doses. And although the storage has gotten a little bit easier, you can keep it in a regular freezer for two weeks as opposed to those ultra cold freezers. Mm -hmm. It's still um, difficult. Once you take it out of the freezer, you can keep it in the refrigerator for five days. Once you dilute the vial, you have six hours to use it. Oh, wow. You have to use it in increments of six. So we can get to the end of the day and there's one person who wants a vaccine where you have to find five other people. You can't open the vial for one person. Ah, you can't. Oh, I see. I don't think a lot so, of people knew that. Yeah. So it's way more tricky. And that's just the logistics of the vaccine. Then when you have to try to move all those people in and out of the office and park and get seen quickly and then still see your other patients and balance it all, it's it's been a logistical challenge and um, we have reinvented the wheel about three times and maybe four or five times by now in, in three weeks and it's tricky um, and until it can be packaged in smaller amounts mm -hmm. um, or we kind of figure out a way to spread it out to more offices and, and, and really spread the word so that other offices are comfortable doing it um, that's going to be a process that hopefully we can get other folks to jump on uh, board with and Dr. Wilkova, just got a few seconds here. What do you want folks to know, parents of teens who are eligible to receive the vaccine through your lens as a doctor, scientist? What do you want folks to know about the importance of getting their teen vaccinated if they are indeed able to with no other medical issues? Well, I, I think our one patient summed it up best. I think this is an opportunity for them to get their lives back on track. And it's been impacted in many, many ways, physical, mental, emotional. And this is an opportunity to do some good. It's a safe vaccine, it's effective, and it, it's a game changer. And I encourage anyone who has any questions about its safety, its efficacy, to ask, 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 and, and listen, and, and go ahead and get this vaccine. Dr. Jane Wilkow, pediatrician and the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we appreciate it. And thank you for your staff and send them our best. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here we go again with this word, eviction, and the moratorium that now has been extended by the CDC, which now this extension will last until June 30th. But still, despite this ban at this time, more than 8 million Americans are behind on their rent. That's according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And there's some uncertainty, uncertainty surrounding what's next for so many households 
Once the moratorium is lifted, we've had this conversation so many times on Closer Look. We'll join me now with an update on all of this is Susan Reef. She's the director of the Eviction Prevention Project at the Georgia Legal Services Program. Susan, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being interested in the topic. Well, let's let's begin with the CDC moratorium because, again, Susan, there's a lot that people ask, what does it actually do, what it doesn't do? You know, will this prevent someone from being evicted up until at least June 30th? And, or is this really kind of complex? Um, it is complex, and I think the best way to describe the CDC order is that it's an imperfect tool. Mm-hmm. Um and we are, our staff at Georgia Legal Services and all the attorneys at Atlanta Legal Aid and other groups are just using it, you know, the best we can uh, to prevent evictions. You know, one of the drawbacks about the CDC order is a tenant has to know about it. They have to file the CDC declaration, mm-hmm. complete it, give it to their landlord, and then notify the courts. And so it requires an affirmative act on the part of the tenant, which requires knowledge. And, you know, getting that knowledge throughout the state of Georgia, all the different counties is difficult to do. Um, So we do see a lot of people who call us at the last minute where, you know, I'm about to be evicted. We talk to them. We realize that they are covered by the CDC order Mm -hmm. and they are protected. They just didn't know until the last minute. And, um, and in a surprising majority of those cases, we're able to get the CDC order signed, delivered to the landlord, notify the courts and notify the sheriffs. But um, in the past year, we've seen an increasing number of those emergency type situations. What has been, do you all, when you talk to landlords and, and, and look, we've been very fair. We've reached out to so many private landlords and we've reached out to associations, you know, because there are, there are a lot of sides to this. What do you, I'm just curious, what do you all hear from the landlords? I mean, are some saying they are just too far in debt and that they really need to get another renter in there? What's that conversation like with, do you have those conversations with landlords? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, We absolutely do. Uh, Because, we realize at George Legal Services, um, unlike in a more metropolitan area, Georgia Legal Services serves the 154 counties outside of Atlanta. So we're serving rural Georgia and North Georgia and, and areas where the primary source of affordable housing for our client population is not the big, sophisticated corporate landlord. It's the mom and pop landlord mm-hmm. who maybe owns five you know, less than 10 properties, single family homes, you know, they don't have the resources a corporate landlord has to maintain the properties when the rent's not being paid. And we don't want them to go out of business. They're vital to providing housing for our client population. Um, So yes, we've had those conversations. You know, one of the, and we do realize there are two sides to it. One of the benefits now to landlords for keeping tenants in the property and, and for a reward for those tenant landlords who have like, you know, kept the tenant in the property is the availability of rental assistance now. Mm-hmm. Um, because those landlords, as long as the tenant is in the property in the county served by the Georgia Emergency Rental Assistance Program, they are eligible for rental assistance. And we are working and partnering with the Department of Community Affairs to help the landlords access that. But that's, you know, in combination with the CDC order, there may be a solution here for, for both the landlords and the tenants. And to your knowledge, are all the counties adhering to this? Uh, Stephanie Stokes from our WABE newsroom a while back did a story on a judge who signed off on an eviction and really didn't care about the moratorium. Uh, Unfortunately, that is accurate. And that has not changed since that report. Um, And we did see that report have a, a positive impact in one of our counties, but we still have a couple of 
of counties where the magistrate court judge just refuses to, to recognize the CDC order. And why? <laughs> I'm just curious. I, you know, it's like I can't run a red light just because I don't want to stop. I'm just it's yes. a federal. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, and for tenants who have an attorney and who can go through the appeal process and, and fight it, there is, you know, there is a remedy for them. But, you know, at Georgia Legal Services, we always say if we see one client with a problem, there are probably 20 or 30 other clients with that same problem who didn't get to us. Um, so it is just a, kind of a battle of attrition at this point is that we just battle each one. What is the call volume of folks every on a daily basis, Susan, into your organization? That that has been uh, extremely hard. We at Georgia Legal Services have a unit, our advice housing advice line unit, that's staffed by three attorneys who are the primary contact for anyone who calls with a landlord tenant problem. And you know they talk to the person, and then the, if needed, they'll refer them to the local office for for representation. But I. Can't, uh, you know, we have counseled since September well over a thousand people on the CDC order, in addition to what our offices have counseled people on. And the primary thing that we see are, are these, the number of emergency calls, the number of the sheriff is going to be here. I just got to know, so they're going to be here in 24 hours. What do we do? We didn't know about the CDC order. Can I still be helped? And, you know, those are, I have an amazing attorneys on that line, but you know, they are really um, it, each call is uh, it takes a toll on them. And we are always invigorated by the cases that we're able to get the CDC order to the sheriff in time to stop the eviction. But then we always carry the, you know, the, the pain of not in those cases where we aren't able to. And, and unfortunately, we're not in every case we, able to stop the eviction. Mm. We know the federal government has pledged more than $46 billion in rent relief. We know that Georgia recently received some money in rental uh, assistance. We've done a story on that. But according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, many states have not even set up a rental assistance program. Uh, how would you grade what Georgia is doing, and, and can it be better? You know, what are those challenges? Um, let me, for full disclosure, say that Georgia Legal Services has partnered with the Department of Community Affairs mm -hmm. to help tenants access rental assistance. And I think the fact that that we have that partnership demonstrates that the state has been very receptive to understanding that there that uh, the means for applying right now is an electronic portal. Mm -hmm. um, it's a two part process. Tenant has to apply. Landlord has to apply. They both have to sub submit information. And DCA has done a wonderful job of recognizing that while the portal may be efficient, it's not accessible to everyone. And what we at Legal Services are doing in partnership with them is making sure it is accessible for everyone. Uh, we walk tenants through it. We file the application for them. We help landlords who can't, you know, a lot of our landlords um, can't, don't have the technology or the skills to upload documents into a portal. So mm -hmm. we're, we're doing that, trying to facilitate access. Um, it is, you know, the treasury program is positive and that it's very streamlined, uh, but, you know, anytime the federal government gives out money, they want documentation of eligibility from everyone. And, and that is just the nature of the program. Mm -hmm. And that's where the barriers are for people is, is uploading things like proof of, of who they are, their driver's license, things like that. We actually even, uh, speaking of Stephanie Stokes from the WAB Newsroom just today in a report uh, in Cobb County, allegedly in, in their rental assistance program, requiring Social Security numbers through your lens with your expertise, because we're talking about federal money here. Is that legal? 
Ooh, I'm not going <laughs> to turn an opinion on the legality in that case, but it, you know, each time you request a piece of information from either a landlord or a tenant, it's a barrier to accessing the assistance. Mm -hmm. And what's important is each time you have a requirement that you have a way that if that requirement turns into a barrier, it can be addressed. So a fast rule of you always have to have this piece of information. I don't like that. I like, mm -hmm. do you have this information? If you don't have it, these are alternate ways that we can do that. Do they need to know everyone who lives in the household? Because I'm, I'm, yes. I'm where, where I'm going with that is concerns about folks who may have uh, some legal questions regarding their actual citizenship or, or to be lawfully residing in this in this nation. What's important is not the for purposes of the Treasury Department rules. Um, the household's eligibility, because to receive rental assistance, the household's income has to be below 80% of mm -hmm. the area median income, which is a HUD calculation. But basically, it's a need base, financial sure. need base. So disclose. So the program that I work with, with DCA, requires the income from anyone who permanently resides in the household and doesn't have another place to live. Um, doesn't live somewhere else. What's important there is not the citizenship, but the, the household income. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, every time there's a piece of information, it can be a barrier. But if I'm talking to a tenant and they have concerns about that, we can figure out a way to provide the needed information, which is, does that person have income as opposed to disclosing status, which, um, is a, which is a separate piece of information that is often not required. The last time you were on the program and we had a theme, a special theme show where we talked about all of this yeah. and many of the folks in this space, like you and others, and we've been hearing this word, uh, eviction tsunami and eviction crisis. We're not sure how much longer the CDC can keep extending the moratorium. Some have said as long as there is a pandemic that's been declared by the World Health Organization, it should exist. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, like I said, the CDC order is an imperfect tool. And one of the main imperfections in it to me is this waiting till the last minute to renew it. Mm. Um, I... I have talked to tenants who that last week we get a flood of calls and I help handle, handle some of those calls where people are just like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I have a thousand dollars. That's not enough to pay everything I owe, but if I'm going to be evicted in two days because the CDC orders expired, I need to save that money. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Should I move? And you know, it, I, I have no good answer for them, which is I believe I have indications that the CDC order will be extended, but, you know, I can't tell you for sure it will. Mm -hmm. And that has just been the hardest part of this because, you know, at Christmas time, we were in the same position and now we're, we were in it again at the end of March. And I imagine we will be in it again at June where it's uncertain whether or not it will be extended. And that is stressful on tenants and their families and their children. And Susan, as we wrap up, if someone listening to this conversation worries they may be at risk of eviction or their property manager or landlord, what, what resources are there out there for them? Where do you want them to begin? Obviously you all can help. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. That, I mean, if a tenant is in the position where they are unable to pay their rent, they need to look at filing the CDC declaration before any action is filed in court. Um, and the, the um, CDC.gov site has the declaration in multiple languages on its website. At Georgia Legal Services, we have a Facebook page where we have videos which explain how to fill out the CDC order and what it means. That's a great resource. Uh, the important thing is that tenants deliver that CDC declaration to their landlords. 
and for landlords and tenants who have, you know, this has been going on since September and a lot of past due rent has accrued. Um, tenants are never going to, the tenants I work with, low income tenants, are never going to be able to pay that off and pay their rent moving forward. And that's where rental assistance comes in. Um, the statewide provider of rental assistance is the Department of Community, Community Affairs. And they have a website, which is Georgia Rental Assistance, mm -hmm. all one word, dot gov. Dot, I'm sorry, Georgia Rental Assistance, one word, dot ga, dot gov. And landlords and tenants can go to that site and make an application. And they can also reach out to Georgia Legal Services and other agencies that can help them through the application process. And we'll have um, a link on our website to that uh, declaration from the, that the CDC has. It's a file that folks can download or, or you know print out yep. as they need it. Susan Reef is the director of the Eviction Prevention Project at the Georgia Legal Services Program. Susan, as always, we appreciate you taking the time to come on this program. I know you and your staff are very busy. Thank you again. Well, I always appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to get the information out there. Thank you. Take care now. You too. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Gabby Tobin is a ninth grader at the Lovett School in Atlanta. She's pretty good at math, too. And along with her commitment to excellence, Gabby has been using her math smarts to help younger students during the COVID-19 pandemic. And recently, when Gabby joined Closer Look, we talked all about this in her math tutorial videos called For Math's Sakes, Peer-to-Peer -peer Videos and Her Foundation. So our conversation begins with Gabby reflecting on what this last year in school has been like. For me personally, this past year has been uh, pretty challenging for me just going into a virtual schedule from in-person school. I have been getting pretty decent grades throughout the entire, uh, through the entire COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. but it just has been a challenge to, uh, to just a transition in general. Has that been for your friends too? Would you, have you all talked about how challenging, challenging it is not to, you know, be in school and passing each other in the hallways and the cafeteria, just everything that comes with being, being in school. You all talk about this? Yes, we actually do very often. Uh, it's been very, very challenging just not being able to see your friends and people you enjoy hanging out with at school. Uh, I really did miss uh, having my friends just to talk to in between periods let me ask you this, because during all this, you came up with an idea. You were going to create, for math's sakes, peer-to-peer -peer videos. What's the backstory here? So the backstory for the actual project is I wanted to connect with the, the school, Lindley Sixth Grade Academy, and their students, mm -hmm. because for the past four years, I've developed a very, very strong relationship and a commitment to work with them. I provided school supplies and volunteer tutoring service, services in the area of math and reading for the past four years. And this all started when I was nine years old, turning 10. I gave school supplies instead of birthday presents. And I did this because I wanted to instead of getting birthday presents because a, an overwhelming amount of the presents that I got were left unopened. And so I didn't want those to go to waste. Mm -hmm. And during this, during this time of like growth and development, I wanted to do something just very helpful. And so we contacted the principal of Lindley sixth grade Academy, Dr. Denise McGee, and she agreed to work with us for my 10th birthday. And this is how I developed this strong relationship with the school and the principal. Now the backstory for the project, mm -hmm. I knew that the COVID-19 pandemic would affect the students at Lindley Sixth Grade Academy because it's a Title I school. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to her and we brainstormed the idea to make the videos. 
And so I called up some of my friends from school. Uh, five of them were from school. Four, four of them actually go to my school. And then two of them are uh, uh, also Girl Scouts seniors, as so am I. And we just worked on these videos and they just became very, uh, very popular. Yeah, they took off. They went viral, as they say. And you all do all of this. You all do the editing. Are you getting any assistance from teachers or parents? You all have taken this project and you own it, correct? You do everything. Yes, we do everything. Uh, We do the editing, the storyboards. However, we want to do the videos. I since I am the project manager and I did do videos myself, I gave my I gave my team the freedom to do whatever they want just to make it very understandable and very fluent. Oh, your team. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love that. And and let me ask you this because I understand the videos are also being converted into other languages. Yes. So I have a very close relationship with the person that is uh, converting the videos into Spanish. And I am so very grateful that I could trust her in, in, uh, in this very, very uh, heavy duty. What is sixth grade math like? I got to be honest with you, Gabby. I, I, I do not remember. I remember sixth grade. I do not remember the math of sixth grade, but <laughs> I'm sure... I'm sure I had some challenges. Uh, what's the feedback been like? The feedback is has all been positive. Uh, we had a few critiques here and there, but those were from the people that have helped us over the entire the course of the project. But the feedback from the students has been uh, very overwhelmingly positive. And I just really love helping the students and just... And they and I love seeing the smiles on their faces. That's a great feeling. I understand that. The voice you hear is Gabby Tobin. She's a ninth grader at the Lovett School, and she's the creator of Math Sake peer-to-peer videos and the founder of Forty Mustard Seeds. Because that's what I want to get into now. You have your own foundation. What the found with Forty Mustard Seeds? I know there's a story there, but for our listeners who may not know, why Forty Mustard Seeds? So the name. 40 mustard seeds, and that is number 40. Uh, first, the number 40 comes from the the numbers that I've been donating to Lindley Sixth Grade Academy. So for my 13th birthday, I donated $4,000, and I also volunteered 40 tutors. Mm-hmm. And that's where the number 40 comes from. Uh, the mustard seeds part comes from when, uh, like I said in the previous in the previous statement, I said that I started donating at ten years old, and my mom, we actually were watching a news uh, a news uh, show, I think, and we saw this we saw this one segment, and. It was about these teachers who were donating uh, school supplies to their students. And I asked my mom, because I was nine turning 10 at the time, and I didn't understand uh, why they needed to to buy the school supplies for them. And my mom told me, well, they were less fortunate. And I started to understand then. And then I told my mom that I would do the same thing if I had the money. And then my mom said, the famous statement, I don't need money, but all I need is the faith of a mustard seed and a willing heart. Ah, there you go. I knew it was coming. Let's talk about your your mom and this process and those around you who've been so supportive because at the age of 14, you started this when you were around 9 or 10. You know, you've been on a path. Where does this passion come from to help others, Gabby? My mom and most of my family and close friends have always told me that I had a, a, a heart a willing heart, a gift, uh, a heart to give. And I don't, I really see this as something that I like to do as just giving back to my community. Uh, people have told me across, across the board that I've been doing like really, really good things, but in my mind, I'm just doing a normal thing. Uh, and let's talk about this gold award from the Girl Scouts. How cool is that? 
it is really cool, especially as a freshman, because uh, the gold award is usually attained by juniors or seniors. But as a freshman, it's like very, very rare. Very, very rare. Uh, what are your interests, Gabby? I know you, besides helping others, what do you like to do? Uh, in my free time, I like to do gymnastics. I am a competitive gymnast on my school's team as a varsity member, and I am at Buckhead Gymnastics and Cheer. I am also a cellist in my orchestra for more than six years, and I earned the membership in the esteemed Honors Collegium Strings, which is the Honors, uh, which is the honors Level uh, Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And my my other hobbies include traveling, hanging out with my friends, and I also like to solve Rubik's cubes. Know what you know about Rubik's cubes? <laughs> I'm so glad Rubik's to hear you say that. For, <laughs> I've been solving Rubik's cubes for the for as long as I've been donating to Lindley Sixth Grade Academy. I just I think I just picked up the Rubik's cube, and my dad and I we were trying to solve it one day. And then I and then I memorized all the algorithms and he was just very impressed. Yeah, I tried to do that, too. I was just turning stuff, though. I, I can get one side, Gabby. That's it. I can get, <laughs> I can get one one side. You mentioned um, the passion that comes with helping folks. What do you think? And this may be unfair at the age of 14. Maybe you don't know. But what do you think you might want to do in the future? I have gotten this question a lot of times. Uh, I do want to become an oncologist in the future because I've, since the age of three, I've always known I wanted to be a doctor. And then at the age of five, my mom, uh, my mom lost a friend to lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And that's where I wanted to kind of pursue in cancer research. But I never knew at like five years old what it was called or how to research it. I didn't even know what cancer was. Mm -hmm. I just knew that it was a thing. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 10, I went to a camp, a summer camp, and we did an oncology course and I just fell in love with it. I just love uh, cancer research and I also love helping people. And summer camp is so cool. We have a segment coming up uh in the near future about the importance of summer camps on so many kids. I am a summer camp kid here. Gabby, best of luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for what you're doing for so many. Gabby Tobin, a ninth grader at the Lovett School, the creator of Math Sakes peer-to-peer videos and the founder of 40 Mustard Seeds. Gabby, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Remember, you can find all these segments online. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast. So make sure you subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.